coming up on Economics Explored. So when government comes in and says, well, we don't like prices rising as fast as they are, so we're going to impose controls to prevent that from happening. First of all, it is treating a symptom of something else. It's not dealing fundamentally with the issue at hand that produced the rising prices in the first place. So it's really a political diversion. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 125 on price controls, which some commentators are suggesting could be used to reduce inflation. We also explore some other topics, such as whether Jesus was a socialist, why Joe Biden arguably should look back to the 21st president, Chester Arthur, and why the separation of bank and state is so important. My guest this episode is Lawrence W. Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, a leading pro-free market educational nonprofit headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia. Larry has authored nearly 2,000 newspaper columns and articles and dozens of articles in magazines and journals in the United States and abroad. His writings have appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the Christian Science Monitor, USA Today, the Epoch Times and the Washington Examiner, among many other places. Larry is frequently interviewed on radio talk shows and TV, including on Fox Business News. Please check out the show notes for links to materials mentioned in this episode and for any clarifications. You can find the show notes via your podcasting app or at our website, economicsexplored.com. If you sign up as an email subscriber, you'll be able to download my new ebook. Top 10 Insights from Economics. So please consider getting on the mailing list. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, then please either record them in a message via SpeakPipe, see the link in the show notes, or email them to me via contact at economicsexplored.com. I'd love to hear from you. Righto, now for my conversation with Larry Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education. Thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Crotz, for his assistance in producing this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Lawrence W. Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Gene. It's a pleasure to be with you. Oh, it's great to have you on. Larry, I've, uh, I've been reading a lot of your writings lately. You've, uh, you've started off uh, the year very well and uh, commenting on important issues or yeah, crazy proposals such as price control. So we might chat about that a bit later. But first, I'd like to ask you about the foundation, the Foundation for Economic Education. Could you just tell us a bit about what its role is and the type of activities it engages in, please? Your listeners and viewers can learn a great deal more by visiting its website, which is feefee.org. Uh, the foundation was created in 1946 by a great man named Leonard Reed. He was no relation to me. He spelled his name R-E-A-D. But after World War II, he looked around and realized that there was no organization in the world that was full-time devoting itself to explaining and defending how free enterprise, the profit motive, private property, uh, how that system works. And so he created the foundation for the purpose of um, uh, spreading those ideas. Over the years, our message 
and our principles have not changed, but the focus of our message and principles has somewhat changed. Uh, it's become a bit more focused on young people, uh, specifically high school and college age. And we do that through uh, programs in person all over the country and the US and abroad, as well as the website, uh, videos uh, on the website, courses, uh, you name it, all designed to uh, explain how freedom and free markets work. Okay. So you mentioned, was it Leonard Reed? Did he write that famous SAI pencil? Yes, he did in December of 1958. Uh, that has had a remarkable impact on people all over the globe. Absolutely. Well, I think it just shows just how complex even products that we think of as simple are and just how, I mean, there's no way any central authority, and this is what we discovered with the Eastern European socialist economies with the Soviet Union, you just can't plan this sort of thing. You need to rely on the market mechanism to be able to produce even something as that we might think as uh, mundane as a pencil. Uh, so, yeah, I'll put a link in the show notes uh, to that essay because I think it's just it's brilliant and I think Milton Friedman quotes from it in Free to Choose if I remember correctly. So, yeah, that's... And after someone reads it, uh, they are well-armed to take on a central planner type. Uh, every time I run into somebody who thinks that uh, he knows enough that he can plan an economy uh, of millions of people, I always say, well, wait a minute, you don't even know how to make a pencil, let alone uh, <laughs> yeah, <that's right. laughs> direct an entire economy. That's right. Well, you've got to think about it. Where do you get the, uh, you've got to get the timber, you've got to, uh, you've got to cut it, you've got to get the graphite, et cetera, combine them all together. So, uh, yeah, great essay. Right. And uh, is, is it Hazlitt as well? Is he associated with the foundation or is that a, he wrote that book, is it Economics in One Lesson? Is that one of the books that you promote? Yes, it is. Uh, one of the more popular offerings uh, from Fee in the last uh, 70 years. Uh, Henry Hazlitt was long associated with Fee. He was uh, one of the charter members of its board of trustees, a good friend of our founder, Leonard Reed, uh, and um, was on the board for, golly, decades. And uh, I'm happy to say that I knew him personally for the last uh, decade of his life. Right. Yep. And that book has had a, a big impact too. So he must have been pleased with uh, how that was received. Yes. So, uh, yes, yeah, very good. Okay. Well, we might... Uh, get on to some of the topical issues. So, I mean, the big issue, big economic issue at the moment is inflation. So we're seeing accelerating inflation in advanced economies. And in a way, this probably should have been uh, expected given the big expansion in the supply of money that we've seen in the United States, United Kingdom, Australia too, to a lesser extent, but still uh, a substantial increase. And now we're starting to see that in inflation. And I mean, some people are saying, well, okay, maybe it's temporary, that there could be some temporary element. There's a supply chain disruption. Who knows? I mean, my view is that uh, it is something we've got to worry about. And people are starting to talk about what do we do about it? And uh, well, there's a monetary policy response, but then there are people who are thinking, well, let's be careful because we don't want to constrain economic growth and cost jobs. So why don't we look at price controls? And uh, you've written a great article price controls, killing the messenger if you don't like the message. Could you just uh, talk about what, you're, what you mean by that, please, Larry? Yes, I'd be happy to. We should think of prices, Gene, as conveying immense amounts of information. 
Uh, prices result from the free interplay of supply and demand, which in turn reflect uh, the individual choices and ambitions and opportunities and tastes and you name it of endless consumers in the marketplace. Um, uh, prices don't just accidentally arise, and uh, the notion that you can fiddle with them by government decree with no consequence is ridiculous. It's anti-science. It's anti-economics. Prices are what they are in free markets for good reason, because they're reflecting conditions of supply and demand and people's preferences and tastes and so forth. So when government comes in and says, well, we don't like prices rising as fast as they are, so we're going to impose controls to prevent that from happening. First of all, it is treating a symptom of something else. It's not dealing fundamentally with the issue at hand that produced the rising prices in the first place. So it's really a political diversion. It's politicians who, on the one hand, have got their hand on the printing press, you know, cranking out easy money at low interest easy credit and pumping up uh, prices. And then uh, at the other hand, uh, they got a club in their fist and they want to beat uh, people for responding the way you you would. If any time you massively increase the quantity of something, it will affect the value of every single unit. And they've been expanding the money supply immensely. So if they put on price controls uh, to prevent prices from, from being at some higher level, All that does by treating a symptom, not the cause, is to uh, create economic problems of their own. It creates uh, shortages, for instance. If the market price of something would be $10, but government says, no, you can't charge any more than seven, well, then what happens is uh, at seven, more people want the stuff, and at seven, fewer suppliers will provide it uh, than would be the case at 10. So then you got a double whammy. You got less of the stuff coming on the market and more people wanting it at that artificial price. Bingo, long lines at stores and shortages. So uh, people who propose price controls, I think, are ultimately anti-economics, anti-economic science, and apparently oblivious to the effects that we have seen historically, uh, literally for centuries, with no exception. Yeah. One thing about this issue, Larry, is it seems to be something that, uh, I mean, the vast majority of economists seem to uh, be in uh, agreement on, which is good. So you quoted in your article, well, there was an op-ed in The Guardian. We The title was, we have a powerful weapon to fight inflation price controls. It's time we consider it. And Paul Krugman responded, I am not a free market zealot. Well, we all know that. That is certainly <laughs> true. But this is truly stupid. So absolutely. Uh, and, I mean, you've had experience in the... U.S. in living memory, haven't you, of, uh, well, of, uh, of some people in the U.S. Uh, of price controls? Was it in the 70s that there was the, was it Nixon and whip inflation now and then Carter perhaps who had, was, was, were there controls on the price of gasoline and then that did lead to these big lines at, at uh, gas stations in the States? Yeah, the uh, whip inflation now thing actually was Gerald Ford, uh, and that was just a campaign to get people to wear buttons that said whip inflation now, <laughs> as if that would somehow whip it, you know. But before him, it was Richard Nixon who actually imposed wage and price controls, first in the form of a 90-day freeze on virtually all wages and prices, and then followed by government-directed uh, prices that limited by how much they could rise. 
every economist uh, worth his salt knows that that produced disaster. That was no solution to anything. And it gave us long lines at the gas pump and empty shelves in the stores. I mean, it was ridiculous. And uh, I used to know a man, he's, he's deceased now, but he was uh, uh, chairman of the Council of Economic Advisors, Paul McCracken, great economist. He cautioned Nixon not to do this. He said, it's never worked in 4,000 years. Don't even think of it. And uh, Nixon went ahead anyway, and shortly thereafter, McCracken resigned. But yeah, it, we've had lots of experiences. Lots of countries have had experiences with it. In revolutionary France in the 1790s, the government there imposed the so-called law of the maximum, uh, which said that uh, you know government will fix the maximum price of things and the penalty for violating that will be death. <laughs> and so they guillotine a lot of people for that. And it did not make anybody produce more of anything. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, a negative supply shock too, isn't it? I mean, if you're killing, the, uh, <laughs> killing your producers, yeah, terrible. Okay. <laughs> right. Uh, that's some good stuff there, Larry. And I guess I mean, is your, I take it your view would be that inflation is a monetary phenomenon, therefore the key to controlling it is to you know, get, your, get your monetary policy right. I mean, I don't want to have a, you, I don't, this isn't about monetary policy, but I'm guessing that's where you're coming from. I mean, there's a big debate about what that means and role of the Fed, et cetera. Um, but would that be your view? Uh, inflation, I know uh, Milton Friedman famously said, is anywhere and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And I'm sympathetic to that, but I also point out that there's another dimension here that uh, uh, prices ultimately reflect uh, to a great extent what's going on up here in people's minds. And so sometimes you can have even, they are extraordinary circumstances, but there are occasions when you could have soaring prices without an increase in the money supply. And one of the examples I like to point to is the Philippines. Uh, during uh, World War II, when the Japanese had occupied it, they imposed their currency on the Philippines. General MacArthur, of course, uh, was uh, attempting to ultimately take the Philippines, and he was jumping from island to island, getting closer and closer. The Japanese weren't dumping any more uh, of their paper money into the Philippines, and yet prices would leap every time word came that uh, MacArthur was now you know, a few hundred miles closer. And that's because people's estimate of the value of that money declined because they knew, hey, let's, if he gets here and, and takes uh, the Philippines back, uh, the Japanese currency will be completely worthless. So given that prospect, we're happy to uh, pay any price to get anything now while it's worth something. So that's a rare occasion. Uh, we're not facing that circumstance today. So we do have to fall back on the fact that today's inflation that we're witnessing is not a Philippine-style uh, type rise in prices. It is a monetary phenomenon reflecting the massive increase in money and credit that our Federal Reserve in the U.S. has uh, manufactured and many central banks around the Western world have done as well. Right. That's a great story about the Philippines. I'll have to look that up. MacArthur is, of course, a uh, a great hero to many of us in Australia because th there's a view that he essentially saved Australia. Uh, he he said he based himself in Australia after he fled from the Philippines, and he had an office just uh, down the road. Well, a bit, little bit down the road from where I am here in in Brisbane in the AMP building uh, during World War Two, and uh, where yeah, that 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 was one of the 
the locations from which he waged the uh, the war in the Pacific. So uh, yeah, great story. Uh, so uh, very good. Okay, so that's a good discussion of price controls, Larry. I'd also like to ask you. You've also written about whether Jesus was a socialist. So I'd like to ask you about that. And then also uh, I'd like to sort of go on to the, I don't know if you saw the recent controversy around Dave Ramsey's comments. You know, Dave Ramsey, the the esteemed financial commentator in the US. Yes, although I may not be aware of uh, recent comments that, that you're bringing up. Okay, okay. Well, essentially what he he argued was that someone asked him a question as a Christian, should I feel bad if I raise the rent on my properties to the market rent? And then that means that some of my tenants can't afford to live in those properties anymore or it causes them financial hardship. And uh, Dave Ramsey got into, well, his comments, uh, they weren't well received by many, particularly on the progressive side of politics because they were arg- because he said, oh, look, there's no problem with doing that because it's not me that is evicting you it's actually the market and uh, he was appealing to the market so yeah i'd like to ask you about that if you ever given you oh, haven't yeah. seen his comments and you may you know it's probably worthwhile considering the whole context of them you know feel free not to sort of comment on that but i did i do just i would like to ask you about your work on well was jesus a socialist uh, could you just take us through what your analysis in of that question has uh, revealed please larry I'd be happy to, Gene. In fact, maybe uh, the best way to begin that is to actually tell a story from the New Testament that answers your first question. Okay. Along the lines of uh, what Dave Ramsey apparently said. Uh, Jesus himself told uh, nearly 40 parables, and uh, most of them deal with uh, uh, things like uh, eschatology and uh, salvation and so forth. But at least three of them have very strong economic content. One of them that's relevant to uh, what you've just raised is the parable of the workers in the vineyard. And this is about uh, uh, a man who who apparently owns a substantial vineyard, and uh, he needs to bring the grapes in. Uh, It's harvest time. And Jesus tells the story of how he uh, gets a group of workers together first thing in the morning. And he, he says, I'll give you each a denarius for a full day's work. And they say, okay. So they go out and they start picking grapes. And then around noontime, the owner realizes, wow, I've got to get even more out there. So he gets another group together and he says, look, uh, I know the the day's half gone, but if you'll go out for the rest of the day and pick grapes, I'll give you each a denarius. And then finally, at the end of the day, with maybe an hour before the dark, uh, and he still has grapes that have to come in, he calls another group of workers and says, if you'll take time out, go out for an hour and pick some grapes, I'll give you a denarius. And then later, according to the story, uh, the owner gathers all these three groups of workers together to pay them. And the first group, of course, is very angry Mm. because they're saying, what? We worked a full day and you're giving us the same as those guys who showed up at the, you know, later, even the ones that only worked for an hour. And you would think that if Jesus were a socialist, he would have the vineyard owner saying, oh, you're right, this is unfair, I'm sorry about that, blah, 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 blah. But instead, Jesus has the vineyard owner say to these guys, it's my money. You signed the contract. I'm giving you what I promised. Now take it and get out of here. I mean, that's Jesus basically saying uh, private property, voluntary contract, keeping your word, honest dealings, and I think supply and demand uh, all defend what the uh, 
vineyard owner is saying, presumably he had to pay that last group of workers a hefty premium to get, they probably worked for somebody else all day. And now they're being asked to go out for yet another hour. He has to pay them a premium to do that, to bring the grapes in. Jesus does not say, oh, well, let's be compassionate and give this group the same as that group or, or, or in proportion to their time. Instead, he says, uh, uh, each man is getting what he was promised, what he agreed to by contract. So I think Dave Ramsey is essentially right. Uh, there is no obligation, moral or otherwise, for someone uh, to uh, uh, endure a loss or to get less than he could for property that's his. Uh, when market conditions suggest that a higher rent is warranted. It's the higher rent that will likely bring more housing units into the marketplace, which will solve the problem in the, uh, in the long run anyway. Right. Yep. Okay. By uh, inducing more supply, more investment in rental properties. Yep. Yep. That's a, that's a good point. Okay. Well, um, I'll put a link to uh, the article on Dave Ramsey. I thought it was a fascinating discussion uh and also yeah i'll i'll find something i'll have to link to that was it a parable was it yeah the parable of the workers in the vineyard and i discussed that in more detail in my book uh, was jesus a socialist if, if uh, anybody cares to look at it uh, uh, from that perspective yeah it's an interesting question i must say it's not I, i'm surprised that it it has become uh, you know that it is something that's up for debate, uh, is this because a lot of people on the left side of politics have appealed to Christianity as a way to, su- to to support their what they're advocating, policy positions they're advocating for? Right? Okay. Yeah, I, I think so. You know, I don't give the left much credit for their economics, but I do give them credit for their marketing because they're always out there saying, "Oh, uh, you know, go with us," because. Our way of thinking will produce more for people. We're going to take care of people. We're going to give them stuff. It won't cost them anything. They won't have to worry about where it's coming from. You know, I mean, the, the rhetoric is always uh, very promising, but the results and the outcomes are, are pretty dismal and uh, miserable. Uh, a lot of people come to this mistaken conclusion that Jesus may have been a socialist because he, he talks so much about helping the poor. But, um, you know, I think... In capitalist countries where more wealth is produced, you have more giving and more caring and more philanthropy than you have in socialist countries. In fact, even government to government foreign aid is primarily from the predominantly capitalist countries to the predominantly socialist uh, recipients. If Jesus came back today and spoke to a large audience of people and said, okay, you know, I was interested in the poor. Tell me what you all did for the poor. If you raised your hand and said, Oh, uh, Jesus, for the poor? Yeah, I voted for all the politicians who said they'd take care of that. I don't think he'd be impressed. I think he would say, what? You resorted to theft? I I told you not to steal. And I told you furthermore that the poor are are, uh, folks that you ought to, from the generosity of your heart and your own resources, ought to help. I never told you you could just pass it off to politicians. If If they solve the problem, it'll be at 10 times the price. (laughs) <laughs> yes, yes. Okay, that's a that's a good point. Uh, I'll have to come back to uh, to this in a future episode and looking at just you know me, you know what are the best ways uh, to reduce poverty? I mean, if we if we've actually figured that out, maybe we haven't. I mean, clearly, 
I mean, the welfare state that we've got in in countries like uh, Australia, the UK, to a lesser extent, the US. I mean, you could argue it has relieved some absolute poverty, but then at the same time, it, it does, it, arguably, it traps many people in poverty in a way. Uh, so, and, uh, I, and to make a long story short, uh, Gene, I think you can't solve poverty if the pie is shrinking. Mm. And you have to make a bigger pie. And there is no known system in the history of mankind that makes a bigger pie faster than the system of freedom and free markets. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. We'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia, but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. The other things I wanted to chat with you about uh, before we wrap up, Larry, are some of your other recent well some recent articles of yours there was a piece uh why i wish we could put chester arthur and joe biden in a room together to talk infrastructure spending so i'd love to hear about that particularly about chester arthur because he's one of the he'd probably be one of the lesser known u.s presidents i i take it yes he is one of the lesser known ones he served uh uh, less than one full term, he took office as vice president. He, he took office and became president when uh, James Garfield was assassinated in the middle of 1881. So he served about three and a half years, the rest of Garfield's term. term. He's often written off as sort of, uh, uh, you know, he was uh, tied to the corrupt uh, Tammany Hall machine in New York and so forth. Or on the good side, historians will remember that he did support civil service reform and made the federal government perhaps a little less corrupt. That was uh, a good thing. But he also, I think, understood the Constitution and appreciated it, uh, appreciated it much uh, more so than Joe Biden does. And so I wrote that article pointing out what uh, Arthur's view on uh, infrastructure spending was compared to Joe Biden's. In America, we just recently went through a national discussion and a, a bill passed, uh, supposedly bipartisan, I guess it was, uh, for massive, uh, almost two trillion in infrastructure spending. Well, uh, an equivalent bill was called the River uh, Rivers and Harbor uh, Act, or Rivers and Harbors, and uh, uh, Arthur vetoed it. And in his veto, he raised some great objections, all of which have apply to the bill that Biden recently signed. He said, hey, you guys, this is way too much. There's no way that a government of our size can know where all this money is going to go. Uh, and it looks like uh, just a small portion of it is even earmarked for uh, infrastructure anyway. There's a lot of pork barrel stuff in here. Quit doing this, loading our bills with all this other nonsense. Uh, that's what Joe Biden should have said about the recent infrastructure bill. But of course, he was all for it from the start. Uh, I think about 10% was really aimed at infrastructure. The rest is uh, uh, pork barrel and progressive agenda stuff. So, uh, yeah, I would like to have put uh, Joe Biden and uh, Chester Arthur in the same room and say, Chester, go at it. Tell this guy what uh, uh, infrastructure really is and why uh, it's so wasteful to spend uh, so much on it. Right. Okay. 
at the same time, there, there is. Would you say that there is an issue with infrastructure in the US with the quality of infrastructure? This is something I chatted with Darren about, Darren Nelson about in a previous episode, and Darren's view as well. We need to get the private sector more involved in it, uh, public-private partnerships, perhaps. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that, Larry? I mean, what? I mean, yeah. do you actually have any? What what is the quality of infrastructure like? I mean, is there actually is there a problem to solve, and and how would you go about it? Well, uh, with infrastructure, I think there has always been some measure of problem because government has sort of assumed from the start that this is a legitimate uh, province of government, and once you do that, well, then you have to at least expect that they'll keep it up and uh, do it right and keep it, keep an eye on it and repair it when it falls apart. But politicians are, you know, they come and go. And in the meantime, they're more interested typically in the flash in the pan. They show up to cut the ribbon at the start of a bridge that's being built. But once it's built, it's no longer politically sexy to stand around and keep an eye on it in case it uh, collapses. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because they, they figure, well, that, if that happens, it'll be long after I'm gone. So why should I care? So you do end up with uh, uh, politicians putting more focus on the construction of the stuff and less on its repair and maintenance. Um, that's where you can get uh, a better uh, or a bigger bang for your uh, uh, dollars, or uh, if you will, by um, writing contracts with the private sector that require ongoing maintenance and inspection and so forth. I wouldn't want the government with its own employees and its own infrastructure monopoly actually uh, becoming a bridge builder. They don't know about bridges. That's best done uh, by the private sector. They should be contracting with private sector providers to do it and then monitor the contracts and put all the provisions in those contracts that would uh, require proper maintenance. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. Uh, yeah, it's it's just one of those uh, great challenges. Uh, it may, how do you get the infrastructure that you need at, at cost effectively in Australia? One of the problems we've got. I mean, there is a lot of government investment going into infrastructure at the moment, but it, it seems to be at very inflated prices, particularly in. Well, I guess all over the the country, really. There's a powerful construction union, uh, which is uh, allied with the the government in the state that I am, Queensland, which has ended up inflating the cost of any infrastructure yeah. project by thirty or forty percent. It's uh, yeah, it's quite extraordinary, and uh, you know, taxpayers end up uh, wearing that. So. You know, I wouldn't be surprised, Gene, if you have some of the same kind of history in Australia as we do in the U.S., but there's a lot of history in America of government spending on infrastructure that produced disaster because uh, uh, it dangled subsidies in front of uh, private contractors who then went after the subsidies and cared little about how well the infrastructure itself was uh, actually built. And the best example is America's transcontinental railroads. There were five of them built uh, across the country. Four of them got extensive federal government land grants and subsidies. Not only land grants, but they got subsidies on a per mile basis. And so uh, four of them uh, threw down tracks just to get the goodies. Mm. And in fact, uh, the, the two famous ones that met at Promontory Point, Utah, famously, Uh, They were actually, as they were getting closer, they were uh, crossing over to the other guys, uh, other companies' territory and blowing up the tracks because they wanted to get 
more subsidies by laying more track down. There was only one transcontinental that got no government subsidies. That was James J. Hill's Great Northern. And it was not by coincidence the only transcontinental that never went bankrupt because they had to put down tracks when it made economic sense, not because uh, the government was throwing money at them. Right. Okay. Okay. So another, another good example I'll, I'll have to investigate. Uh, right. So I guess as a last question, I'd like to ask about uh, some of your other writings. And it looks like you must be a, you have been a prolific or, or a regular traveler. I mean, obviously COVID sort of you know cut back on all of our travels, but you've written some great pieces. You've made observations on what we can learn from other countries around the world and and some places that uh, aren't you know you, you generally don't hear about. And one of your articles is the world's oldest republic reveals the secret to peace and prosperity. Yes, you've also drawn lessons from. Uh, from economic history in uh, in Italy, in your I think it was in Italy, your article "Why the Separation of Bank and State is So Important." Would you be able to explain you know, what is that secret to peace and prosperity? How that's revealed by that uh, the world's oldest republic, and also the about the, the uh, point about the separation of bank and state, please. Okay, I'd be happy to. Both of these articles you can find at fee.org, and you can find them also on uh, where I blog on uh, lawrencewreed.com. Uh, with regard to the uh, the oldest constitutional republic, uh, we published that last Sunday, and it's about uh, the tiny country of San Marino. It's the fifth smallest country in the world. It's entirely uh, enveloped by Italy. It's in the northeast of uh, the Italian peninsula, and right in its middle is this big rock uh, called Mount uh, Titan. And uh, it's the oldest republic in the world, dating back to the early fourth century, when um, uh, that chunk of territory was gifted from its private owner, a woman in Rimini uh, in Italy, now now part of Italy. Uh, She gifted it to a uh, Christian stonemason who had fled there to avoid the uh, persecutions of the emperor Diocletian. She said, okay, you can have this property. And, and uh, he, in effect, declared the first, uh, the, now the oldest constitutional republic. Only twice in its history has it been invaded. And in both cases, uh, within a matter of months, uh, the Pope ordered the uh, invaders out, uh, lest they be uh, attacked by papal forces. So they've maintained their independence all these years. The secret to the prosperity, and they have a GDP per capita, by the way, that's just a a shade below that of the United States. The secret is that they have kept themselves economically free. Freedom House uh, is an outfit that rates countries uh, as to their degree of economic freedom, and they rate San Marino as the 12th freest country in the world. Its capital gains tax is only 5%, which is a third of what ours is in the U.S., it's much lower than it is in the European community. Um, just a great little success story in that uh, quiet little enclave in the Apennine Mountains. The other uh, example or, or article that you're referring to uh, comes from Genoa, uh, the other side of Italy, northwest Italy. Uh, Genoa was for hundreds of years an Italian city-state, much as Pisa and Venice and uh, Gaeta and some others were. And uh, the secret to its success, more than any other single entity, was a private bank that was so private, it was, in effect, a country within a country. 
It was called the Bank of St. George. And when it was chartered in 1407, the separation between the bank and the government of, of Genoa was as complete as it could get. It basically said, we're not paying any attention to you, and you don't have to pay any attention to us, but you need us, because the bank uh, consistently bailed out the state when it got in trouble. But uh, the bank uh, was uh, very firmly on a gold standard. Uh, it had a policy of not issuing any paper for which it did not have gold coin on deposit. So it was reliable, it was honest, and for hundreds of years, until Napoleon invaded and shut the bank down, it was um, a rock of stability and a big reason that Genoa uh, became such a, uh, a maritime trading giant in the Mediterranean. Right. Okay. So this wasn't uh, something positive Napoleon brought then. Uh, that's interesting. I have to read more about it. So so how does it illustrate that the separation of bank and state is so important? How does it illustrate that? Well, the Bank of St. George uh, exerted a, an anti-inflationary uh, pressure on the government of Genoa. Uh, you know, governments love to inflate. And the moment they get in charge of banking, that's what they do. Mm. Uh, they they print the stuff and uh, makes it easier for them to pay their bills and to run deficits and so forth. The Bank of uh, St. George uh, did not abide by that, and uh, they wouldn't have recognized any coin or paper from the city of Genoa if it hadn't been uh, sound. Um, and their example uh, spoke volumes to the people of Genoa and across Europe that, hey, here's a bank that's in great shape. It has to bail out the government of the region, in fact, every now and then because uh, they're, they're profligate, but the bank is not. So um, I think uh, the separation of bank and state is, some, is an issue I think I wish we spent a lot more time on these days. We've kind of assumed that government should be orchestrating the bank a banking system, but the history of government and banking is not a positive one. Uh, they take over banking whenever they can because it's their avenue to depreciating and debauching the currency. Yeah, and I think it's a big concern when governments set up these banks or shadow banks to promote particular policy objectives. And I remember or back in the late 2000s, I think it was, there was a lot of talk about an infrastructure bank. I think that was something the Obama administration was looking at but didn't go through with. And there were similar moves here in Australia that didn't didn't amount to anything just because it, it raised the prospect or it, re, it reminded people, well, here it reminded people of what happened in the 80s with the state banks of South Australia and Victoria, the tri-continental, the merchant banking arm, and and they just got heavily involved in speculative property development, if I remember correctly, and ended up going bust and costing taxpayers uh, billions of dollars. So yeah, people still remember that. There's, I think there's a risk if governments yeah, get involved in banking and uh, yes, financial shenanigans. So uh, yeah. And we always, too, too often anyway, we judge government by the stated intentions rather than by actual outcomes and results. If a, if, if a government came to me and said, hey, what do you think about us getting into the banking business? I would probably say to them, well, aren't you in the post office business already? And aren't people complaining about that? Why don't you get that right before you go into banking? <laughs> uh, in, in the U.S., you know, everybody complains about the post office. Well, what makes you think the same entity can, can manage uh, a nation's banking system? I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, very good. Uh, Larry, any final words, any 
anything you think we should be uh, thinking about or looking out for? Well, I would say this, team, that uh, uh, people everywhere, I think, should be thinking more than they are about the importance of individual liberty. Uh, we sort of take it for granted in places where we've had a lot of it. But, you know, there's nothing about it that's either automatic or guaranteed. And it can disappear uh, with bad ideas uh, almost overnight. And yet uh, life without liberty, in my estimation, is unthinkable. So we better think about it. I can't imagine a life in which you aren't living uh, yours. You're not making your choices. Somebody else is imposing their choices on you. They're living their lives through you. And I just can't imagine living in that kind of an environment as they, to a great extent, do in places like, say, North Korea or Cuba. So liberty is precious. It's rare in history. It's never guaranteed. And it deserves the uh, conscious deliberation and sometimes sacrifice of everyone who wants to be a free person. Absolutely. It just occurred to me, Larry, we, we probably should have touched on the uh, pandemic. So, I mean, feel free to respond to this if you if you like. I mean, otherwise we can wrap up. But one thing, it, well, in Australia, we've, uh, we've had quite severe restrictions relating to COVID at times, and uh, they've raised eyebrows around the world. People have thought, what's going on there in Australia? What a lot of people in Australia say is, oh, well, I mean, that's necessary for the public good. And I mean, you may bang on about civil liberties or or liberty, and I have at times, I think some of these restrictions have been excessive, but you get a lot of pushback and people say, well, you think you've got the rights to do that, but you don't have the right to spread a deadly virus and uh, and spread the disease. So that's how they push back. And uh, look, I agree with, I think, We've lost a lot of, unfortunately, we've lost the our original commitment, a, a really a strong love of liberty that we've had. I think we've lost that. I think we've, but yeah, people just they're just so terrified of this virus, and they they push back with that line. Well, you don't have the right to spread the virus, and so yeah, I, I just don't know how to to win those arguments. To be honest, Larry, so that's more of a reflection. Well, you know, there's something, something to be said for this, Gene, and that is that this circumstance was so unprecedented and it's not over yet that the jury may not yet be completely in with all the relevant verdicts. I have a sense, though, that the more we learn, the more uh, of this we go through, the more experience we have with it, the more we're likely to look back and say those uh, lockdowns were counterproductive. The mask mandates went on far longer than they should have, if they ever should have been in existence in the first place. I think a lot of the tools the government employed uh, will come under more scrutiny and question. So if you're a cheerleader for them now, I would say, why don't you hold off? Because you may be embarrassed in the not too distant future. But what concerns me the most is that all of this uh, uh, totalitarian impulse sets dangerous precedents. Uh, because people who love power, who, who want it to be concentrated in government and think with the right people, it will do the right things. Um, they don't stop with the power that they are, that they get. They usually say, well, you know, it's necessary now to hold on to it. And so in the long run, if we allow this COVID experience to set the new norm for government intervention, radical intervention in our lives across a broad front, uh, I, we may look back and say, you know, we, we, we would have been a lot better off if we simply endured COVID <laughs> um, because 
one of the worst things that people can do is to consign their lives uh, to politicians. They, there are a lot of things they end up regretting whenever they do that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a good point, Larry. Okay, we might uh, we might end there. Thanks so much for your time. Really enjoyed that conversation. Some great points and excellent historical examples that I'm going to have to look up and add to my arsenal of uh, historical examples that I can can bring up. Uh, so uh, very good. Uh, Lawrence W. Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Thank you, Gene. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.